churches. I've been teaching and marking for King's School of Theology, and at the moment I'm teaching a 12-week course for them each week. I've also been spending quite a bit of time with my father, who's 93, uh, and who lives up in London, so he needs some help. So, um, any rumours you hear that I've been slacking are just <laughs> not really true. Um, we're looking at what are commonly known as the Beatitudes, eight or nine, depending how you count the last one, statements by Jesus in the most famous sermon ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount. Each statement uses the formula, blessed are those, or blessed are they, for they will. Um, and Helen spoke, I thought, really well last week about the first of these, and I'll be talking about the second today. We've had a lot of mourning in the last few years, the last few months, and even the last few weeks and days. Um, I even had a moment this morning as we were singing there. I don't know whether this happened to anybody else, but as remember we sang Ancient of Days, was the first song we sang this morning. Um, I don't know whether any of you remember this, but the person who first brought that song to us as a church about 27 years ago was Mike Watson. And I can remember him standing up the front teaching us that song. For those of you who don't know, Mike Watson was part of this church. He died a couple of years ago. Um, and even as we sang that song this morning, I had a couple of moments of mourning, um, just grieving the loss of of a brother there. So anyway, blessing of those who mourn is a really strange statement because when you're mourning, you don't actually feel, I've been told not to walk around too much, so um, you don't actually feel all that blessed, do you, when you're mourning? Well, I don't, I don't know about you. It's not a kind of state where you feel particularly blessed. Of all of the Beatitudes, and all of them do it to a certain extent, but of all of them, it's the one that most turns our normal way of thinking on its head. Mm -hmm. But I'm getting ahead of myself here. Let's read the passage. I'm going to read all of the Beatitudes because they belong together, and we miss the point if we disintegrate them. So let's read the Beatitudes. It's Matthew 5, so if you've got a Bible, crack it open or switch it on. Um, we're going to read the first 12 verses. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek. For they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, 
For in the same way they persecuted prophets, sorry, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now one of the things we're prone to doing with scripture is to look at a passage in isolation from the rest of the Bible. And you know I have a real thing about this. Um, uh, and the rest of its context. And in doing that, we can strip it of much of its meaning. That's why I refuse to have a favourite verse. It's all inspired by God. Amen. And it's all part of God's revelation and communication to us. Now, Jesus uses a number of rhetorical tricks here to make the Sermon on the Mount memorable. Each one of these Beatitudes begins with the phrase, blessed are the, or blessed are they, and goes on to say, for they will. And in the next section of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus goes on to do something different, but he goes on to expand, to explain, and to intensify, actually, a number of the command, the Ten Commandments. Well, some of them are not listed one of the Ten Commandments, but of the Old Testament Commandments. He begins with a number of statements beginning with, you have heard it said, but I say to you. And when he does that, he intensifies those commands. You know, he says that you've heard it said, you shall not kill, but I say to you, if you just hate your brother, you're, it's as good as murder. You know, I'm getting off the point. Jesus then goes on after that to talk about how we express our piety with statements beginning with, when you, and it might be pray, fast, or forgive. Sorry, give, not forgive. Uh, and this passage that we're looking at, the Beatitudes, comes at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. And in Matthew's Gospel, all of this comes early in Jesus' ministry. And notice that these Beatitudes are enclosed. Sorry, that's the one we're looking at. Notice that they're enclosed in two of them, which have the same kind of consequence. Both of them, the first one and what most people would say is the last one. Um, promise for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And in fact, the Sermon on the Mount concludes with seeking first the kingdom of heaven. So the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount are about the kingdom of heaven. The clues in the text. You don't need a commentary. You don't need to read Greek. You don't need a degree in theology to understand that this Sermon on the Mount is about the kingdom of heaven. The Beatitudes are about that. They aren't just wise sayings or clever proverbs or good teachings. They're about the characteristics and norms of God's kingdom. The first four are about how we approach God. The second four, or five, depending on how you count them, are about how, you how we behave in the kingdom of God. And we can only do that by the power of the Holy Spirit. You cannot simply achieve those or accomplish them by your own effort. That's why I have a slight issue with people who say that the Beatitudes are the B attitudes. Because you can't be those things without the power of the Holy Spirit. Um, so, we also need to think carefully about what echoes would have been resounding in the ears of Jesus' listeners as they heard him speaking. Can anyone think of echoes they might have been hearing as they hear those words and survey the scene on the mountain. The clue is on the mountain. Moses. Any thoughts? Moses. Moses. 
When was the last time that God gave commandments from up a mountain? It was in the book of Exodus when God gave the Ten Commandments. For these Jewish hearers to hear someone speaking with godly authority on a mountain sets all sorts of fuses blowing in their brains. Um, it has really strong echoes, and, and I won't go into it now, but the Beatitudes have all sorts of echoes, so the Sermon on the Mount has all sorts of echoes of that event back in the book of Exodus. Um, whenever you read the New Testament, you need to be thinking about the Old Testament echoes. Yes, I'm convinced that Matthew's making a direct connection here for the previous, to the previous occasion, sorry, when God gave commandments, ten of them, on a mountain. And actually, they weren't the Ten Commandments, it literally says the Ten Words. So, Jesus isn't giving commandments either, he is bringing words. So, there's a, there's a tighter connection than is immediately obvious. And if Jesus was not himself God, to do that on a mountain, messing with the law of God, would have been a supremely arrogant, foolhardy and stupid thing to do in that culture. There's another parallel I'd like to mention before we get onto the statement itself. Sorry, there's always a lot of preamble with me for those who haven't heard me before. Um, it's this. We read in Luke 4 that Jesus read an Old Testament passage in the synagogue at Nazareth. And it says this, it's Isaiah 61 verse 3. He says, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the... To bind up, he sent me to bind up the... To proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord for the display of his splendour. Now notice that this passage which got Jesus, sorry, that's rather small print, isn't it? I have real trouble fitting the right-hand passage in on one slide. Um, it got Jesus kicked out of town in Luke's Gospel. Um, and it also has echoes. Did you notice as we read it, there are echoes of Isaiah 61 in these first two Beatitudes. And Isaiah 61 is a messianic passage. It's basically saying this is what the Messiah will do. So to this Jewish audience, when Jesus talks about um, coming, to, uh, sorry, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Again, there are all sorts of bells going off in people's heads and hearts as they read this. They're thinking, can it be? Is it possible that this is the one we're expecting? So actually, there's far more going on here than nice wise sayings and proverbs and, and so on. All of this means that Matthew is saying more than simply, blessed are the poor and mourners. He's 
pointing us towards the fact that Jesus is the hoped for one, the Messiah and God himself. That's going on under the text here in the passage. And the Beatitudes aren't meant to teach us to live in misery, as I've heard people accusing Christians of doing. Jesus is saying that it won't always be like this. There will be a time when we're no longer mourning, when we're no longer spiritually poor or whatever. There is an inherent promise of God bringing change and transformation himself to us. So, there are three key words in this verse. I'm going to... No, we'll come back to that. There are three key words in this verse I'm going to focus on because they're all words that carry more meaning than they appear to at face value. You'd expect me to say that, wouldn't you? So the first of them is the word blessed. The word blessing, blessed or bless, has become, in my view, a bit of a soppy word in Christian circles. And you hear non-Christians using it now. It's become very fashionable for non-Christians to say, I'm really blessed to have this. Um, Which, particularly celebrities, I don't know why. Um, I think it's a word that gets trotted out quite tritely without any real thought about what it actually means. Uh, And you often hear it said that it means happy. I'm happy. Well, that's not what blessed means. It means far more than that. Um, That's true as far as it goes, but it means far more than just being happy. It means fortunate, favoured, privileged. We in, in the Western world don't hear the word blessed much, but actually in other countries, in other cultures, it's a word that is very often used as people's name. Um, Those of you who are as old as I am or who are more vintage than I am um, will remember Archbishop Makarios. Anyone remember him? From Cyprus when there was that crisis going on in the 70s or the 80s. It seems a long time ago now. But Makarios actually means blessed. It's actually the word that's used here in Greek. It's a Greek word meaning blessed. Barack Obama, his name means blessed Obama. Um, The word Baraka is the Swahili word, which comes from Hebrew and Arabic, that means blessed. Um, So his name means blessed Obama. In our culture, we don't come across it. But in other cultures, they don't know why I talked about that. Um, But it means privileged to be a recipient of God's favour. You cannot be blessed without God being involved. God is involved in blessing. Um, It has to do with being favoured by God, not just being happy or lucky or in a good place. Um, In his book on the Beatitudes, and this is the only way I'm going to get away with saying this, um, Daryl Johnson says that it means you lucky bums. That's what he reckons it means. And far be it from me to disagree with Daryl Johnson, who was one of my teachers when I studied. So that's the first word, blessed. It means far more than, oh, lucky me. It's bigger than that. And there is a God dimension to the word blessed that we lose if we're not careful. And secular use of that word now is actually taking it further away from its scriptural meaning. Second word is mourn. 
We've come to use the word mourn pretty much exclusively in connection with the death of someone. But the word that's used here has a broader and a deeper meaning than that. It's used in the Testament, in, in the Testament, it's used in the New Testament ten times, including here. Paul uses it to express grief over sinful behaviour in the church in 1 Corinthians 5, 2 and 1 Corinthians, sorry, 2 Corinthians 12, 21, in a similar way. He mourns and grieves over the way they're behaving, um, over sin in the church. Luke actually uses it as a woe to those who are well fed now in Luke 6, 25. And he promises them, he says, woe to you who are well fed now because you will mourn and weep. So it's, it's used over, really over mourning over sin probably in that context as well. It's used in Mark 16, 10. Um, a bit controversial because there are those who say that Mark 16, 10 shouldn't be in our Bibles because it isn't in the earliest manuscripts. So I'm inclined to agree with them on that, but I'm not going to get in that. Um, but it's used there of those who mourn Jesus' death. So it's used there for mourning in the bereavement sense. It's used in James 4 verse 9, calling on believers to mourn over their sin. And it's used three times in Revelation in connection with the fall of Babylon, largely concerning businessmen who've lost their market. Um, so it's, it's a word that means more than simply um, mourning the loss of somebody. It's also used in the Greek version of the Old Testament. Ask me more about that later if you want to know more about that. Um, in mourning over the state of God's people, Israel and the land. So it's used there for grieving over the state of what's happened to God's people. So actually, it's not just about mourning the dead. It's about lamenting things that have been lost or lamenting things that are not right in God's eyes. I personally think that it's a word that we could do with changing the translation of in our Bibles, but it's one of those verses that the Bible translators dare not mess with, um, because it's one of the passages that people look up when they're going to a Christian bookstore and buy a new Bible, um, and if it doesn't say what they're expecting it to say, they won't buy the Bible. Even commerce comes into the world of buying Bibles and translating them. So actually, it's not about just mourning, and I said that, didn't I? We need to learn, folks, to grieve and to lament. We need to feel free to grieve. Darren Johnson also says, comfort is not found by insulating your heart, but by opening your heart. And if we won't grieve, we store up problems for ourselves in the future. We've seen I um, don't want to get into anything too controversial here, but we've seen in our royal family the consequences of not allowing someone to grieve well. Um, it's been drastic and could end up bringing down the monarchy still. Now, I know that I've grieved in recent years over some of the funerals I've had to take. I took four in the last few years for people who were younger than I was, some of them close friends. And one of the things I've also learned in the past few years is that grief and mourning come into all sorts of aspects of life. Yes, we need to mourn death. 
I think there was a lot of grieving over the loss of the way of life we'd enjoyed when COVID struck. And some people are still dealing with the consequences of that. I think we probably all are, actually. Relationship breakups or breakdowns are something that can cause bereavement. Loss of a job or a home can cause bereavement. Even retirement. You know, I retired a year or so ago, and there's been an element of bereavement in that for me that I've had to work through. And significant moves, moving from here to the other end, well, not even the other end of the country, but, you know, south of Basingstoke for some, for some of us pumpkins, um, could be a real sense of loss. Grieving and bereavement touches all sorts of areas of life, not just I mean, financial loss as well. I think some of, the bereavement, some of the grieving we've seen in the last few weeks, actually, wasn't just for the person of the Queen, but also for the constancy and the certainty and the assurance of things continuing the same way as they always had. Suddenly, some, you know, one, I think the most common phrase I heard in some of those endless TV interviews that were on were people bemoaning the fact that something that had been a constant in their lives for as long as they could remember was gone whether they like the Queen or not. Mourning is part of life. Unless you're a sociopath, you'll experience grief. And you experience grief because you care. The late Queen once said, grief is the price we pay for love. I don't think the quote originated with her, but there is wisdom in it, and I might be doing her down by saying it didn't originate with her, but I'm pretty certain I've read it in someone much earlier. But we don't know for certain then what sort of mourning Jesus is referring to here. But I think it probably incorporates all of what we've talked about here, but because of the context of the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes, I think it's particularly mourning for our sin and our lostness before God. I think this because, I've just said that, because of the wider context of what we read here and because of the overall message on the, of the Sermon on the Mount, which points us towards the kingdom of God. And then the third word is comforted. Again, the word here is a far richer word than we think of comfort as being. And again, it might be controversial, but I think we've turned the word comfort into a rather soppy word as well. When I first started learning and reading Greek, I found it was a word that kept cropping up in all sorts of places, meaning a whole lot of different things. I can remember at one point thinking, what on earth does this word actually mean? Um, because I, it come, comes up into, in the context of Paul exhorting people and rebuking people. It comes up in the term of being, in terms of being comforted. You'll see in a minute, it has a very wide, what linguists call semantic range. It's the word, by the way, from which we get the over-preached word. Um, so, it's the same word that we get paraclete from which you've often heard preachers speak about if you've been in churches for any length of time anyway. It's a far richer word than just coming alongside. Um, and it's not tea and sympathy comfort. It's comfort that strengthens you 
that enables you to get through it all and calls you back up into all that God has. It's a word that's used elsewhere, as you can see. Those little slices there in that diagram are so. Sorry, I should explain this tonight. It's a word study to work diagram from Logos Bible software for anyone who, um, who doesn't, I'm sure most of you don't recognise it. I don't suppose many of you look up Greek words in Logos. But um, the size of each segment shows you the number of times it has that meaning in our NIV. Uh, and you'll see, so generally it means encourage, encouragement, urge or urged, beg, plead, comfort, appeal, invite, exhort, I don't know up to his knees, I, I'm not, I think someone's tagged to the text incorrectly there to get that, I have to check that, um, to call on, and a whole load of lesser meanings that don't care as many times. So it's not a word that simply means comfort in the sense of, there, there, it'll soon be all right, you'll be okay, just have a cup of tea, um, and let's say a nice little prayer. It's far more than that word. It's a far stronger bigger, mightier, um, forceful word than, than just being comforted. It's one where those of us who give pastoral care need to think very carefully about what does comfort mean. Um, so it's a word that's used of exhorting, encouraging, pleading, urging and stirring up. Um, it's also about drawing us on. Paul Paracletoed, or Paracletoed, I won't even try and put it in the airist. Eparakalesa, his, um, his people to, to go on, to press on. But this word means that as well. Um, so it's about drawing us on, about calling us to a different way of life, about strengthening us, and about comforting us as well. Even the English word comfort, it comes from two Latin words. Any Latin scholars here? Um, the Latin words cum, which means with, and fortis, which means strength. So cum fortis, comfort. So it's actually, even the English word comfort has changed its meaning down through the, through the years. And the word comfort, certainly in King James English time, would have meant strengthening, not just sympathy. So... Um, those three words are, and, and they're about the only three words in the verse anyway, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Um, each of those three words has more to it than appears to us a simple superficial reading. So, how do we put all of this together? Well, first, if you're mourning at the moment, and many of us are on various levels and for various reasons, God sees and God knows. If we're grieving, we need to let that grief work through. It's no use pretending it's not there. And it's no use trying to be strong. It's like trying to hold back the tide and it will eventually overwhelm you if you don't let it go. God sees and God knows our grief. And it was God who designed us to have a grief reaction when things happen. In times of loss. And it is God who will lead us on from that place of mourning in good time. 
can't rush it. I get really angry with people who say, hasn't he got over it yet? No, grief is a journey that takes time. And it might take you a week, but it might take someone else several years. Now, it's not to say we're allowed to indulge ourselves in grief, but we do need to let that journey of grief work through. I've given out more of these booklets, I think, and at least this is a bereavement booklet I normally give to people when they're bereaved. I think I've given out more of these in the last two years than I did in the previous eight. It's um, unbelievable, the extent of grief in the Christian community. God sees and knows our grief, and it was God who designed and created us to have that reaction in times of loss, and it's God who will lead us on in good time. That will be comforted, I think, is what theologians call a divine passive that often occurs in Scripture. Whenever you see that they will be this or they will be that, it usually means that it is God who will comfort those who mourn. Not just that they will be comforted, but, and that comfort might come from God Himself, might come from Him speaking through Scripture, might come from Him speaking through a song that we sing. Or it might be God arranging for others to come alongside those who mourn. But it is God who comes to us in our place of hopelessness and helplessness. I wasn't going to say this this morning, but I kind of just have this very strong impression I needed to. So I'm going to talk about someone who, very briefly, about someone who was grieving and mourning. Um, and this might not seem a particularly relevant passage, so I apologise if I've got this wrong and it just had too much cheese yesterday. But um, in Genesis 16 and Genesis 21, we see the story of Hagar. Hagar was Abraham and Sarah's servant. Um, and Sarah, when she couldn't conceive a baby, said to Abraham, you have a baby through Hagar, then at least you'll have an heir. And then as soon as Hagar got pregnant, uh, sorry, no, before that, um, Hagar then decided to throw her out of the house. So Hagar's chucked out of the house and actually meets with God. Then, further round, she's pregnant in chapter 21 with Ishmael. And um, once again, Sarah gets very jealous and upset with her and chucks her out. So what we've got here is a single mother with a young baby, mistreated appallingly by God's people, and I'm quite happy to say that. She was mistreated appallingly by God's people. Um, starving, unable to feed her child, having no means of supporting herself. And if it stopped there, it would just be horrific. But actually in Hagar's case, when God's people have abandoned her and trashed her, God himself comes and cares for Hagar. It's God himself who comes and feeds Hagar. It's God himself who comes and ministers to Hagar. Now, there might be people here who've been mistreated by God's people. And if that's the case, God sees and God knows. Those who mourn will be comforted. God sees, God knows, and God will act. He is and will be your comfort. Grief and bereavement is a massive subject on its own. And if you find yourself stuck in that place, do find someone you trust to connect you with those who can help you in that journey. 
because nobody should be stuck in grief and unable to work it out. The first of the four Beatitudes, Tim Keller says, are about how we enter the kingdom of God and approach God. And if you look at them, the first four of them are all... Did I have another slide? Oh, no, I didn't. No, I didn't. Um, are all about how... So the, the, the first four of them, blessed are those who are poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are those who are meek, blessed are those who are hunger and thirst after righteousness, are all Godward. They're all about how we approach God. There isn't another slide. That's it. Thank you. Yeah. Um, good job. I knew him off by heart, wasn't it? Eh? Uh, I, I was preaching somewhere last week and I got completely dried up in the middle. I, was, I, I went off piste, started telling about something and then forgot all the, all the details of it. It was really bad. Um, but they loved it and they loved me and they were gracious. So... Um, and it wasn't the main point of what I was doing. So these first four are about how we approach God. How we, Tim Keller says it's about how we enter the kingdom of God. We come as poor in spirit. We come as people who mourn our sin and our lostness. We come in meekness and we come to God hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Yes, we can sing, bold I approach the eternal throne, and bold I do approach the eternal throne, and claim the crown through Christ my own, for those of you who like old hymns. But we also come before God with meekness, with humility, poor in spirit, and mourning our lostness. We don't come to God as people who've got it all together, I've encountered some people in my time, not many, and I don't think any in this church, but who, who think God's lucky to have them. <laughs> you know, that's just wrong. God's so lucky to have me in my gifts. This church is so lucky to have me. Um, and if we try to come to God as people who've got it all together, we come unstuck eventually. In fact, we can only really enter his kingdom and walk with him when we've realised that we don't have it all together. And we've come to a place of mourning over that. A place where we realise that we don't have it. I went through a period about 25 years ago when I knew everything wasn't right. Hugh can attest to this. He walked through it with me. Um, I don't think I'd be here today if it hadn't been for Hugh walking through that with me. It was a time when my walk with God just didn't seem to be working the way it was supposed to. It was all going wrong. The simple answer I, answers I'd always relied on weren't working out. At that time, you tell me a problem, I'd read a verse for it. In seconds, I could produce a verse for any problem you cared to tell me about. Um, but those simple answers and those simple verses I'd always relied on just weren't working out. God seemed to be blessing everyone except me. Although I've since discovered there were quite a few others in the same boat, even on Friday someone was talking to me about that. And for me, my circumstances were just getting worse and worse. I can remember on one occasion, I was, um, at that time, I was the head of IT for a company in Basingstoke, and on one occasion, the managing, we had about 7,000 employees. On one occasion, we had a big project going on, which was, big transformational project for those of you who work in IT, you know how transformational they usually are, don't you? But we won't go there. Um, but 
managing director called me up one day and he said to me, you do realise, Greg, that if you haven't got this right, 7,000 people could lose their jobs. And I thought, well, what do I do here? And so I said to him, well, actually, if you haven't got the controls on this project right, 7,000 people could lose their jobs. Um, and I thought, oh boy, this could get me fired. But actually, it was him who got fired. But it was, a, it was for me a really dark time, massive stress at work. In church, God just didn't seem to be doing what God was supposed to be doing. Um, and at home, we had some difficulties as well. Our marriage wasn't breaking up, and neither of us had an affair, so please don't speculate. But it, it was difficult. Um, so I came to a place where I was mourning and grieving. I actually came, I think some of you have heard me say this before, but I came to a place where I got down before God. And, and I thought, well, actually, either God doesn't exist, or he's given up on me and doesn't care about me anymore, or what I believe about him is wrong. Um, and I decided that the most acceptable of those three to start with was the last one. <laughs> Um, and that's how I started on what Tim Munger used to call my theological journey. Um, I started reworking everything. I, I put everything up for grabs of what I believed about God and started going back to Scripture um, to, to do it. And God met me in that. I was comforted. I was comforted by being drawn on, drawn up and exhorted, as well as being reassured that things all would be well. There is sometimes a need to mourn and to grieve over our own state and our sinfulness. Over the state of God's people. I hear some people going on about the state of God's people in this nation, and they're probably right, but the place to do that is not moaning at people like me, but actually going to God and saying, Lord, what's happened to your people? If you think that's the case, I actually think God is at work in his people in this nation. There are things that are wrong and there are things that we get wrong. But God is at work. Sorry, that's a whole separate issue. Uh, and then we can mourn over the state of the nation. I've mourned over the state of the nation this week. I don't know about you. Um, what on earth is going on? What is God doing in this nation? I'm not going to step into the controversial aspect of that. Uh, and we can mourn over the spiritual state of our families. I've got a lot of friends who mourn over the state of their children. But we do that motivated by our love for God and a concern for his kingdom. We don't do it to indulge ourselves or to get sympathy from others. We do it motivated by our love for God and a concern for his kingdom. So... God sees, God sees your grief. He sees my grief. God hears. When we cry out to him, God hears. And God will act. He might not do it on your timetable or mine. He doesn't usually. Um, but he will act. Those who mourn are in a blessed place. Because they come to the place where they can be comforted by God and move on in God. The fact that we're mourning means we've realised that things are not good. We've realised what is lost 
And that creates room for God to move. And together with being poor in spirit, meek and hungering for righteousness, mourning is the way we enter and sometimes remain in God's kingdom. Because it actually puts us in a place of vulnerability before God where he can meet us. I'm just going to pray and I'm going to hand back to Pete. Father, we want to thank you for your word. We want to thank you for this amazing Sermon on the Mount that the Lord Jesus gave us. And Lord, we want to pray that you will make us people who are able to be poor in spirit, who lay aside our pride, who mourn, who, who grieve over what's lost, who grieve over what's wrong in our own lives and around our own lives. People are able to be meek and not take the strong position. And people who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Lord, will you, by your spirit, work in each of us? Will you adjust us and move us on? Lord, will you make us men and women of whom it can be said, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Amen. Amen.